see everything that we associate with Britishness, the flag, um, British colours, for me, screams far right. Um, because they've almost claimed that. And I think what's most exciting about this is we, we all need to talk about things and reclaim it back and say, actually, being British now is um, culturally diverse, we're all very proud, we need to talk about immigration in an open way. And from my own personal perspective, um, my family, I believe, thrive um, because we're in Britain and I feel very proud of that. And my own family is one that we're very diverse. Um, my partner's Nigerian Muslim, we're a multi-faith family, we've got dual heritage children, my stepdaughter's black evangelical Christian. So we've got a real rainbow mixture family and actually um, the fact that we exist and thrive in, in this country makes me feel very proud and, and my partner very proud to be British. And, and feel that included. That was novelist Christy Watson speaking at the launch of a new think tank called British Future. I'm Rachel Jolly and I've come along to the offices of British Future, an organisation that looks at identity, integration, migration and opportunity, to interview the director, Senator Catwaller, about their new report, Hopes and Fears. The question about the United Kingdom seems to have kicked off in early 2012. Why do you think that has happened with so much enthusiasm or uh, anxiety in some cases? I think it's going to be a very interesting year for Britain and that's a good opportunity for British future as well because what we're hoping to do is open up the public debate about identity, about the anxieties that people feel, whether that's about integration or immigration, about the economy and fairness and economic opportunity. And this is bound to be a year, I think, where people are feeling anxious uh, about economic and social issues, but also, uh, as we found in the polling that we did, uh, they feel rather hopeful uh, and have an appetite for some of the big national occasions that we're looking forward to, like uh, the Olympics and the Jubilee, which I think reflect an appetite for people to have more things that bring us together so that they respond to them. At the same time, when the whole question of will we be British in five years' time is also on the table because Alex Salmond has got a Scottish government, uh, uh, the SNP won the election. They get to put the question to the Scottish people in the next five years, do you want to be British or not? That's a vote that Scotland will have, but it's a vote that is bound to profoundly reshape the identity of people in England, people in Wales, people in Northern Ireland, across the UK, and where I think we'll be remaking what we think it means to be Britain. British if we decide that we still want to be so. But you did some polling about what people in Wales and Scotland and England think about Scottish independence. What did that find? Scottish independence is still quite an unlikely outcome of a vote in Scotland because less than one in three people support it. What was very interesting about our poll is that there were very similar levels of support of just under 30% in Scotland, in England and in Wales and slightly more people in Scotland wanting to keep the union, 54%, whereas the Welsh and English were more likely to be indifferent to the question. So I think there's a sort of hopeful sign there that we don't particularly massively disagree about this issue. Uh, the English are happy for the Scots to have a parliament, but might want a voice of their own. Scottish and Welsh people also support um, the English having a parliament or whatever form that they choose. So there's a sort of basic fairness 
issue that people seem to think applies to their part of the United Kingdom and to everybody else's, which might be uh, a hopeful moment for politicians who fear this will all end up into squabbling over who pays the bills, who subsidises who. Uh, it does seem that we could sort this out on equal and fair terms if we chose to do so. Some people get really upset and worried about conversations about identity. They think it feeds into some sort of nationalism in a quite a negative way. What do you find? What do you feel about that? I think there are definitely dangerous forms of nationalism and history offers us plenty of warnings about those and people react to that in different ways. I think uh, the important lesson to take from history is that the best antidote to dangerous forms of ethnic or atavistic nationalism are confident and inclusive civic forms of patriotism. But people disagree about that, and some people think that any discussion of identity is bound to be exclusive as well as inclusive, so that any form of patriotism turns into uh, jingoism. The reason I think this polling suggests that isn't the case is that we see that British identity has become very inclusive. It's still important to two-thirds of people in England, 60% of people in uh, Scotland and, and more than that in Wales, but it's held most strongly by ethnic minority people in Britain who perhaps have felt that they had to stake a claim to it, whereas perhaps some of the white majority took it for granted. It proves to be quite open to uh, strong levels of civic pride from people born outside Britain. So we have in Britain uh, already an inclusive and civic form of identity. And I think there are now emerging strong identities that are national in Scotland, in England and in Wales, and they'll have to be civic too. And I think the Scottish nationalists have done a lot of work in the last uh, 20 and 30 years to make sure that Asian Scots uh, are as Scottish as anybody else. And I think as the conversation emerges in England, I think we'll see efforts to emulate what I think has already happened in Scotland and Wales, where those identities are inclusive, you're bound to have, I think, a sense of English belonging in England in 2012 that reflects who the English now are. And anyone who offers you an all-white Englishness that's ethnically based, I think, just will never get off the starting place. We've got two big events for Britain this year, the Jubilee and the Olympics. Do you think that might be feeding into why we're talking about these things this year, or are there other factors... I think there's, the polling that the British Future did found a strong appetite for these events. 64% uh, of people thought that the Jubilee would lift the national mood and uh, a very similar number, just a slightly smaller number, thought that about the Olympics. So that shows there's an appetite for them. Now that could just be that people like um, a festival uh, and people like a bank holiday. But I think it tells us something more than that as well, that people are actually looking for moments and occasions that bring us together. I think we like the individualistic freedoms of, you know, the iPad and the iPod and the satellite television channels so that we can watch anything we want to whenever we want. And when we've got all of those freedoms to be ourselves in whatever way we want, I think we slightly miss the moments that bring us all together so we're all doing the same thing and we all talk about the same thing, which is why I think uh, street parties will probably be as popular in 2012 as they were in 1977. But something else is uh, happening too, I think, which is that people are saying we're actually confident about modern Britain. And we saw that people in our poll were very optimistic about the positive gains they see that immigration, for example, has brought to them culturally. 
especially in the area of food, uh, also in film and music and art and literature and, and sport. Um, and at the same time, they're interested in celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Queen coming to the throne, celebrating the monarchy as part of British history. So an idea that you have to choose to be modern or to have a past seems to be rejected by most people. And I think that's very healthy because I think it would be difficult to say people in any country, and perhaps especially in Britain, that to be fair to newcomers or to be inclusive of everybody or to have a civic and not ethnic identity, you've got to have less of your own identity and less of your own history and not have a history. I think people would find a sense of loss and tragedy in that. But what we actually find is that most people can do both be in favour of traditions and to make them inclusive and that the people who feel that most strongly turn out to be immigrants and ethnic minorities that's good news for integration as long as we ask who fears being left out who fears being left behind do you think british history has traditionally told uh, a story that makes sense to a wide range of people i mean a lot a lot of people had history at school taught to them through you know monarchs and uh, a few other sort of ranges of people. Does it actually speak to our actual history and, and the society that we were and how today's society has evolved? I think the reason people feel a connection to monarchy specifically, and it's the sort of thing that they might take their children to go and see, is that you get a profound sense of something that goes back generation and generation and generation. So it's all living link to a very, very different age from the world we now live in and I think people are uh, you know interested and engaged in what that tells us about this place and this community and the way that it's the way that it's changed so I think I think people have a sort of historic sense of that but I think it's very important to do uh, what you're suggesting which is to bring out a living sense of history too in our communities and actually to have the history of how we changed and what we feel uh, about that and I think we've had too much anxiety about that and I think this is a particular feature of post-war Britain where we've almost seemed to have an amnesia about the history that created the society that we now are because we thought it would be too difficult or too divisive to discuss it because the history of British society today comes out of being a, an island nation, an insular nation, also a global nation, having an empire and losing it and asking people to come to Britain from the empire and from the commonwealth to work in Britain, uh, you know, in the National Health Service and in other ways. So there's a sort of profound sense in which uh, we shared a history. If you think about, you know, two million commonwealth soldiers fighting in the great wars in the British army, but where we felt in our classrooms that it would be divisive to talk about that story because people will feel they're on opposite sides of the history of empire and decolonisation but we're on the same side now of the society we're now in and what it says to us about uh, citizenship inequality and rights so if we don't teach that history if we say well let's talk about Henry VIII and his six wives because that's a story that doesn't create any contention let's talk about the Nazis because everyone's on the same side nobody likes the Nazis and let's teach Geronimo and the American West which is now one of the most popular GSC modules but it's not possible to teach the story of Britain and how we became this society because we've got a choice between teaching a 1950s imperialism uh, where we want to paint the globe pink or saying it's all terrible and it was all shocking that would be an odd thing to do because I think we can have a confidence in just understanding the history that's made us who we are and the debates that have resonated throughout history 
are we part of Europe or are we not part of Europe? What's our relationship with uh, North America? What's our relationship with the developing world? There's still debates that have been contested in every moment in history and will be contested again today, but we can be informed by how we got here in terms of what we want to do about our identity and politics in the future. thought you might like to hear a few extracts from the roundtable discussion that was held at the launch of British Future in January 2012. First up is James Forsyth, political editor of The Spectator, talking about British values. If you want to discuss the Britishness of values, they sound awfully like you're ripping off the Americans for the simple reason that uh, America was essentially founded by products of, of uh, the English Civil War and the Scottish Enlightenment. And so those great American founding texts all reflect essentially British political thought and British political values. So any attempt to define Britishness in terms of those political values just sounds like you're trying to make Britain sound like another version of the United States, which isn't politically appealing. And so you end up with these very bland list of values that Brown used to, to articulate that, that because no one could disagree with them, lacked any kind of resonance with the public. I think one of the things about Britishness is that it isn't entirely logical and that these institutions like the, the monarchy and the House of Lords, we strip them of most of their powers and then, and then they can stay. And I always think that kind of the, the British attitude to monarchy is well summed up. We locked the king's head off before anybody else and then we knew that we put them in their place and they could then remain. They could then come back. And I think that is actually a, quite a kind of important part of Britishness, which it doesn't feel the need to follow things through entirely to a logical conclusion. In some ways, we in this country, I think mean, we essentially parked the debate on the monarchy as long as the Queen is on the front. I mean, that is, that is now, she's done so long, everyone thinks she's doing a good job, no one wants to say anything negative. And I think that that is, I think that will, and I think that will carry them through the Jubilee. I think mean, the royal family are astute enough to do it um, on the cheap. And I think it will be lots of uh, be rather like the royal wedding. It'll be lots of street parties, and the BBC and the press will give it a very fair wind, and I think it will get through. I think the Olympics, in some ways, presents more of a challenge because in in a kind of I think one of the things about Britishness is that it's a kind of uh, resistance to authority and a kind of slight bolshiness. And I think kind of having Zilvains for the first time in this country is, is going to be something that people won't <laughs> like. Um, uh, but I also think it will be a wonderful testament to the flexibility of Britishness, because the British Olympic Committee have gone around the world finding people who've got kind of claims to a British passport through a grandparent here or there to up our count on the medals count. And I think mean, you will see that, in that you will see everyone just as lustily celebrating the person who um, didn't know they were British until someone from the British Olympic Federation called them up three years ago, <laughs> and, um, and, and anybody else. So I think that there you will see a kind of... We rather like the English cricket team. It'll be a wonderful testament to um, to a, a flexible approach to um, to national identity. And you also hear from Promise Campbell, a young graduate who joined the panel as the youngest member of the team. I think for me, what it actually means to be British is quite pretty much narrowed down to my experience and growing up in London. So. For me, London is this sort of pocket of, um, uh, of Britain that's just so diverse and so eclectic and so very much different from anywhere else. Um, 
and apart from my my three years um, in Cambridge, I've never actually lived anywhere else apart from London. So, so my, in response to your question, my view of what it means to be British is reduced to London. And, and I, did Cambridge feel very different? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cambridge did feel incredibly different. Um, I think being in Cambridge for me, I not only discovered that I was black, <laughs> um, I also discovered that I was female and working class. <laughs> this, this debate is quite interesting in a sense because I think for some, pe for some people are almost anxious and, you know, about the idea or the reality of being British. I'm, I'm quite proud of being British. You know, it's almost acceptable for me to say I'm happy to be British, and it's not acceptable for others to say they're happy to be pr British. And in a conversation with a local councillor um, last week, who was completely uh, upset about a, a local heritage being pulled down in the London borough of Brent, and in the meeting she said, I'm fourth, fifth generation Brent, and, you know, I'm... I'm absolutely livid about this um, building being demolished. And I, you know, I found it so fascinating that she was ex as excited about Brent as I was. So I tried to have a conversation and she was completely defensive and said, oh, I hope I didn't offend you. And I said, no, I mean, I love Brent. I grew up in Brent. Don't be afraid to say that you love Brent. And she said that, you know, because the discourse has been so hijacked by the far right, some people... A lot of people feel marginalised about talking about their sense of identity. People are afraid about expressing their Britishness. But and as Asunda mm -hmm. rightly mentioned, it's almost become per permissible for some people to claim Britain and to say, um, "I'm British and I'm happy about being British," and others not to. And that saddens me. Also speaking on the panel was Matthew Dancona columnist on the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, the values that we are, are talking about when we talk about Britishness are tend to inhere in, tend to be expressed by institutions. And of course, one of the institutions that we're going to celebrate this year um, in a big way is, is the monarchy, which is the absolutely central um, expression of British continuity. Um, but it's a big mistake to think that the only institutions that express Britishness are the old ones, are the, uh, the monarchy, parliament, the courts, and so on. Um, I mean, the 20th century delivered two institutions that are hugely expressive of British values. One is the BBC and the other is the NHS. Um, even in its small and, and, and rather more uh, marginal way, the National Lottery apparently... Um, dug in very quickly into a sense of British fun and, um, and, and jollity and all the sort of music hall atmosphere. And it too became an institution very, very fast. Uh, so I think this, one has to be terribly careful in these debates when one's talking about what Britishness is in underestimating the capacity of this country to, to evolve and to evolve progressively. This last clip, novelist Christy Watson, whom we heard at the top of the programme talking about her mixed heritage family, emphasises that you can't talk about Britishness, in her opinion, without also talking about class. In terms of my experience as a writer, I know 
that people we write about ourselves. And unfortunately, until the media is less Oxbridge white middle class male, um, we aren't going to have as many perspective on Britishness as we perhaps hope to. So I think we really need to open up diversity. Do you think it's a very narrow debate in many ways? I think at the moment it is, but I think it's definitely something that... Um, is that getting worse or better? It's interesting because I was talking to Sandra about this recently, but I think in terms of race it's probably getting better um, in, in, from a diversity point of view, but um, vast majority of um, journalists that I've ever come across are Oxbridge. So again, it's back to that class issue now. And so, it, because we write about ourselves, um, we're writing from a very single viewpoint at the moment, and I think we really need to diversify and look at the whole, whole of journalism, how things are reported, and by who, really. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to check out the others on the Pod Academy website, podacademy.org, where you'll also find transcripts and links if you want to dig deeper.